0: Matthew chapter 23, verse 1 to 15. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. But you Are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert. And when you have succeeded, You make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23 to verse 26. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the most important matters of the law, justice mercy and faithfulness you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former you blind guides you strain out a gnat but swallow a camel woe to you teachers of the law and pharisees you hypocrites you clean the outside of a cup and dish but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of a cup and dish, and then the outside also will be clean.
1: Good morning. This is the second in a series of three on how Jesus taught. It's a bit different from our usual topics, because we're focusing not just on what Jesus said, but on how he said it, the way he taught, and the method of communicating. Recently, my grandson Asher offered me a six-year-old's interpretation of my communication performance. Dad, he said, you know when you say just a minute, you don't really mean one minute, because usually it's more than a minute. Um, And so I know it's just one of those things that you say. Well, he'd found me out. But of course... He was perceptive in that I didn't literally mean one minute or 60 seconds. I actually mean, when I say in a minute, I mean not now. Bex, last week, explained how some of what Jesus is uh, teaching is in the style of his culture, an Eastern culture. It's using some of the methods of the the rabbis, and he was looked at as a rabbi a teacher of great wisdom and that means that having some understanding and some insight into what some of those techniques were helps us to get a grip on some of the the ways that Jesus communicated well when I was living in South Africa I had to learn a little bit of their culture and it took me a, a while to understand that when a friend said to me, oh, I'll meet you there now, what she meant was um, not now, but soon. Um, and then I realised that when, she, if she said, I'll meet you there now, now, she meant sooner than now. Exactly how soon was a little bit variable, of course. Anyway, I don't think we want this to be a dry academic exercise um, dry as toast but a fresh hot toast with nutella on it Asher would appreciate that analogy to give us an appetite for reading our Bible more I hope this series will excite us to want to get into reading Jesus teaching more um, with a greater insight into into why he said things the way he said it so this week We're talking about warnings and woes. Now, we know what warnings are, and these are a few of them that I've been spotting and snapping. Warnings are designed to inform us and to protect us. If you do this, then such and such may happen. But of course, we have the freedom whether we heed the warnings or not. A lot of Jesus' teaching comprised of warnings. It wasn't until this last week when I, I use a version on my phone um, of, that has Jesus' words in red letters that I was able to look through and really appreciate just how much of his teaching involved some sort of warning. So what kind of things did he warn about and what were the consequences of not heeding those warnings? Well, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 is rich with a lot of these warnings. And they're particularly directed at those who had developed a rather narrow or limited interpretation of the law of Moses. All of the warnings he provided as new revelation, they, they, they went over and above and beyond to a different level, the existing wisdom and teaching the rabbis. And it would have been a real eye-opening perspective to his audience. In addition to the law of Moses, it's worth bearing in mind that a tradition of the elders had developed over many years, in which the teachers of the law had added some additional rules. Now, the reasons for this were perhaps twofold. Firstly, it was an attempt to provide a practical interpretation on what was permissible and what was not. So developing with some more specifics um, to guide uh, the uh, Jewish people. Um, But it was also providing a kind of safety zone to give any issues of uncertainty a wider berth, just in case. For instance, the law says, respect the Sabbath and keep it holy. And one of the things that it was not allowed to do on the Sabbath was to harvest your crops. But an additional rule had been invented that said, um, that answered the question, well, what is is, uh, um, uh, harvesting your crops? And Jesus' disciples, you might remember, fell foul of this little bylaw when they walked through the fields and they just picked some grains of wheat, just rubbed them in their hands and had a little uh, tasty snack. And they were criticized for um, uh, breaking this particular tradition that said, oh, even that is harvesting. So as a result of all this, pride had set in amongst many of the religious figures who portrayed themselves as being on God's side of the line between good and evil, often at the expense of having a loving attitude towards others. And Jesus blew that complacency apart. Uh, When I have got carried away with, with following rules and principles at the expense of love and grace towards others, I've had to submit to correction. So let's look at some examples of warnings from Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21 and 22, Jesus says, and I paraphrase, you might think you're okay because you don't murder, but the driving force behind murder is anger. And if that's something that you have a problem with, he says, don't just worry about whether that lands you in court. Be more worried that it may land you in hell verse 28 he says don't trivialize lusting after women just because you're not acting on that lust the fact that you let your imagination run riot will corrupt your body just as much and take you to hell and here is some hyperbole from jesus teaching i love that word hyperbole it's a teaching technique He often used to get a point across by using an obviously extreme exaggeration. And the point being here that to prioritise keeping out of sin above everything else. Even if it means your eye, if your eye makes you sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It's not worth keeping. Of course, Jesus didn't literally mean that. He was just making an extreme point that his audience would have been familiar with that style of of teaching designed to land an important message in a attention grabbing way. That message was the warning that the standard of God's law is impossibly high. Verse 20. If you want to join God in heaven, you will need to be even an even better person than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And everyone knew that they made it their full-time business to obey the law and also the additional rules that were developed that took them to some quite extreme practices to avoid breaking the law. Despite these errors, note that Jesus warned that the standard required for entry to the kingdom of heaven was even higher than the existing Record standard, if you like. He was also saying there that the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're not meeting that standard. And uh, later on in that chapter, verse 48, there's that statement be as perfect as God is. Jesus is making an extreme point here that essentially says, without God, we can't be with god without his help we can't meet that very high standard of holiness required what a devastating warning that despite our best efforts we're on the road to hell okay we've looked at some of jesus warnings now let's look at some of his woes now i need to explain to those who are young which of course is those who are less than 30, that the word woe that Jesus used is not the same as the word whoa. You use often accompanied by the hand gesture meaning stop, pause, and allow me to process that startling information or opinion that you've just voiced. And for those who live in the country or exercise on Mudshute Farm, it's not the whoa of Stop that horse! No, the woe Jesus used is kind of an anguish cry, meaning how terrible. There's a bit of a sadness to it. And Jodie read for us four of the seven woes directed at the teachers of the law and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Famously and repeatedly, he uses this term hypocrites. Who were hypocrites? They were artists, they were actors, Greek actors, who used masks as a way of demonstrating different expressions, of course, hiding their own faces. In a similar way, Jesus says, the Pharisees are hiding their real motives under a veneer of holy behaviour. There's a dramatic nature to Jesus' language, exposing the contrast between their external show of purity and cleanliness uh, and their internal dirty repulsive behaviour. So now we know where the term two-faced came from. It might be an obvious point but if we want to better understand Jesus' teaching we really do need to read more of his source material, that being the Hebrew scriptures that we call the Old Testament. So if we want to learn what phylacteries are, we need to check out Deuteronomy chapter 6, Tassels, Numbers 15. And knowing from Leviticus uh, and a number of places that someone who came in contact with a dead body or blood would be considered unclean and have to go through a period of quarantine. I don't have to explain that word anymore. It adds an extra dimension to, to places like the story of the Good Samaritan. Where the, 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 the Levite and the priest crossed on the other side. Maybe partly because they didn't want to, to risk becoming unclean by associating with the, the uh, injured man. Knowing a bit of that also provides the background to Jesus comparing the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs. Whitewashing of tombs was one of those disproportionate traditions carried out to serve a just-in-case purpose. The just-in-case, without noticing, we might stumble across a tomb and perhaps accidentally touch the dead body inside Um, So we'd have them all whitewashed um, so that everyone would be able to see, even in the dark, and um, be able to avoid them. And so Jesus says, you know, just in the way that you promote the whitewashing of tombs, so you're like whitewashed tombs. That's you. Bright, shiny and clean on the outside, but decomposing on the inside. Now, unlike... The warnings that we've been looking at, um, the, if you do this, then that will happen. The woes seem to describe what's already happening. People who are already um, in, in a situation um, that, that will, will heap judgment on them. A state of sin that they're already in. One more example from, from uh, that chapter um, Jesus says you strain out the gnat but swallow the camel there's this duh that duh, duh. last week Bex talked about in a similar way those, those two kind of stages the two halves to the points that Jesus was making we're, we're seeing that again now aren't we um, it's also a common feature of, of, uh, of Jewish poetry as well um, so another use of this contrasting language or, or metaphor to highlight the absurdity of them straining their wine putting it through the strainer just in case there might be a fly floating around in there that they might inadvertently swallow which might possibly be an unclean animal as far as i know gnats were not on that list but it's like you know at the same time he says it's as if they were swallowing camels. And yes, cloven hoof on the list, unclean animal camel. So they were so busy with the small stuff, they were missing the big stuff. Remember Beck's, I hope I get this right, Chalvalomer, the light and then the heavy, the way Jesus used the minor things to illustrate the weighty issues. Here we see a bit of that again. So Jesus. Despairs that the gold standard of righteousness had been reduced to sweating the small stuff so that tithing their their crops, even to the point of of separating out a tenth of their mint and their parsley from their herb window box uh, to give to the temple, but completely neglecting the big stuff, justice, mercy. Forgiveness. Those were religious, holy men who devoted their lives to following God and training others in the way of God. And Jesus despairs not only that they were disqualifying themselves from God's kingdom, but um, at the same time, see in verse 13, they were shutting the door of heaven in the face of others. They were creating an obstacle training their converts, verse 15, to be children of hell. What worse um, uh, summary could there be? Imagine how this teaching would have scandalised and incensed this audience um, um, who would have looked up and respected um, these holy men. Ironically, our our reading began... um, uh, at the beginning of the chapter, where Jesus pointing his audience to the teachers and the Pharisees, um, and 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 saying that they sit on Moses' seat, that they're Moses' legacy, they are the conveyors um, of of Moses' tradition. You need to listen to them. So at the same time, Jesus was elevating them, or at least their teaching, but then says. Don't, for goodness sake, do what they do. And that was a big thing. Because the, the Jewish rabbinic teaching, that the training of, of apprentices, was based on, on modelling behaviour as much as use of words. They, they would follow, almost literally follow um, in the footsteps of, of, of their rabbi. Not, not to miss a moment, to watch them, see how they reacted, see how they behaved. So for, for Jesus to say, do what they say, uh, not what they do, was undermining their, their very respected status as rabbis. And as if that wasn't clear, Jesus went on to say, and don't call yourself rabbi or teacher. From, from now on, you, will, you need to learn, all of you, from the true teacher, the true rabbi, the messiah, I walk the walk as well as talking the talk, following my footsteps, learn from the way I live as much as from what I say. And of course, there's other places in which Jesus talks about the implications of following me. Um, so that helps us to, to appreciate the, the significance of following the teacher. Let's also be careful not to assume that Jesus was condemning the whole rabbinic tradition or all those who taught the law. No, this was a group of people he was addressing. Um, Let's also not think that his warnings are not applicable to Christian teachers and leaders who, if they don't practice uh, what they preach, then, then, or if I don't practice what I preach, let's talk about me. Um, then I may bring others down with me. A sobering thought for, for me and for all of those who teach and lead. And and by the way, when Jesus cried, woe, it wasn't a word of threat. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't judging. It was an expression of regret. How could you, who in so many re- respects are so right, have gone so wrong. Woe is not a word of abandonment, but an expression of compassion. Look down at verse 37. Jesus takes on the voice of a a prophet, echoing some of the recurring themes from Isaiah and, and other prophets. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. In a, in a similar way, through the, the um, Hebrew scriptures, God laments his wayward people and, and time and again he calls them back to him, even though they've let him down, even though they've rejected him. And, in this statement, Jesus himself is prophesying his own death as 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 you, your ancestors, has, have killed God's prophets who have come before now He sent me, and of course, the slaying of Jesus would be the ultimate insult and rejection of God's warnings, but these are not the warnings of an angry. Vengeful God, as as so many conveniently uh, like to stereotype him sitting on his cloud-throwing thunderbolts, no, no, here's the true God, the one who who waits uh, not for an opportunity to wreak judgment and boom. I told you this would happen. No, here we read of of Jesus speaking of God as a, a mother who cannot stop loving. No matter that time and again her advances to protect her children have been repulsed. And notice that Jesus' warnings and woes—that they're not threatening. Yes, they describe the consequences of the path that his audience are on. But but the warnings are in the right place in the position. They're they're. It, it, you know as a as a warning sign at the top of a steep cliff should be that they they're not they're not halfway down they're not even at the bottom they're in a position where there's always a way back for salvation for rescue i've been thinking about how issuing warnings are a a constant feature of parenting don't know how many warnings I've issued to my my children this week, even um, don't jump on the trampoline carrying your homemade spear is a, is a new one I found myself uh, um, shouting this week. Don't tease your brother or he might hit you. Um, if you don't eat your vegetables, then you won't get dessert. Wash your hands or you might get a tummy upset. But, you know, warnings, as a parent, can become a power trip. Um, we we can use warnings to control, not out of love, but motivated by power. That's that's something I, I often have to remind myself about. But children do need both sternness, which is often, let's face it, more naturally expressed by fathers, uh, and also the kindness of a, a mother, mother hen. We need... God's sternness and kindness. That's a phrase that Paul uses in Romans 11. God's sternness and kindness. I know which I prefer. Um, But if, let's say for instance, one of my children was about to run out into the road, into the the path of an ongoing lorry, and I shouted at them, and they they jumped back, and then they, they cried, and they said to me, you hurt my feelings, you shouted at me. Well, if I hadn't shouted, I wouldn't have been protecting my child. And in fact, the most unkind thing that, that I could have done um, would have been that at the point I would have been said to myself, oh, he never listens. How many times have I told him not to run in the road? Ah, oh, this time I'm going to keep quiet and and let him suffer a potentially fatal lesson. No! Much kinder to risk hurting his pride and his feelings to save him. Are we okay to allow God to hurt our pride and our feelings when we're heading in the wrong direction, and need to hear his loud, clear and stern warning, maybe expressed through through his his direct word, or through an inner prompting or through family and friends, are we recognizing that our best good falls way short of the standard God requires? Have we acknowledged that when Jesus God's Son allowed himself to fall way below heaven to earth, and when on the cross? He fell way below God's presence, weighed down by the sin and shame of the world. He was weighed down by my sin. He was weighed down by your sin to rescue me from danger. And the biggest threat now, today, to my next door neighbour, to our community, to our country and our world, is that we may ignore the biggest warning. The warning that if we claim that we don't need Jesus to save us from ourselves then we're in big trouble. When I was 10 years old I had a poster on my bedroom wall of a a, a picture, a painting of a sinking ship in a storm. And overhead is a helicopter with a man being winched down. And underneath was a Bible verse from Hebrews 2, verse 3, that says, how shall we escape if we ignore so great a salvation? Finally, Paul had a woe. Not a woe. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, woe to me. If I do not preach the gospel, how terrible it would be, how sad he was saying if I did not preach the gospel, if I didn't get this warning message out to everybody I possibly can. And therein lies our challenge.